I know many of you already know Jason Doring, uh, but I wanted to introduce him to you uh, more officially. Uh, unfortunately, it's his last Sunday with us that I get to introduce you to him, at least in the pulpit. Jason and I go back a long way, which is a resounding theme you probably notice around here. Uh, it turns out that uh, Nathan Curry went to a Bible Presbyterian church in western New York that I started going to as a teenager, and then Jason was in a sister church in Detroit, Michigan, and we would get together for various youth camps like we do here, only the presbytery there was much more spread out. And there was another church in Ohio as well, a couple other churches, and uh, a bunch of us exactly the same age, about 15 of us or 20 of us guys hung out between these churches and would he'd drive over to see us from Detroit. He'd drive in his 82 diesel Chevette. He tells people he had a vet when he was growing up. But it's, it was a diesel Chevette. And he'd come and see us and we'd hang out. But it, it, interestingly, over the years, something like 10 of us of that group were in some kind of pastoral ministry now. We're all the exact same age, friends for all these years, different places in the country. But it's been neat to watch how the Lord has brought us together at different times. And four years ago, when Westminster uh, merged or had, really, we joined together, uh, the high school portion especially, uh, with what was Berean uh, School, uh, and we assumed the leadership of that ministry, uh, we wanted to have a Bible curriculum in high school that was not college level, but comparable. It would be not just a teacher doing a devotion. Uh, it would be someone who was trained and understood uh, doctrine and could teach that doctrine and so Nathan and I started that first year of the merger trying to teach ninth grade and develop a, uh, a curriculum. I realized soon after the amount of time it would take to do that, plus everything else that was going on with the merger and everything else going on with church, we needed some help with this. And providentially, right at that time, I learned Jason was available uh, because he had left one call, was in between calls. So I called him up and asked him if he would come for two years and help develop the curriculum and teach it in our high school. So he came and uh, stayed an extra year, three years. I've tried to get him to stay longer, uh, but he has uh, some family responsibilities that are, necessitate him uh, moving this, this coming month or this coming week, actually. So we understand that. Maybe the Lord will bring us back together in some way in the future. Uh, but he has been a tremendous teacher in our high school and has given us a great template for how our curriculum will look in the high school for the years to come, whoever is teaching it. So I'm very grateful personally, and we are grateful corporately. Also for his whole family. They've been a great blessing to us as a church and as a school. So it's going to be a big loss to see them go, but they have enriched us uh, for their being here. Jason's gift is preaching and teaching and discerning the Word of God. So I wanted you to have an opportunity uh, to sit under his ministry one time anyways from the pulpit. Maybe there will be other times in the future, but right now anyways for his last week here, I asked him to come and bring... Uh, God's word to us so that we might uh, be built up in our faith. Jason. I had um, joked around at the first uh, service because um, when we kneel up here, uh, Tony and Nathan both had the kneeling pads, and I thought that the last day they would at least give me um, one of them, and so Nathan graciously gave me both of them. Um, <laughs> And it was fun to watch Tony searching under his chair to see uh, where it was. Um, I will definitely miss the abuse um, from uh, Tony and Nathan and uh, many of the elders that I've gotten uh, to know. Um, it has been uh, fun. Uh, I am very thankful for the opportunity um, uh, that the leadership at Redeemer has given me to come and proclaim the Word of God to you uh, this morning. Um, this church has been wonderful for my family and I. Um, we have uh, enjoyed being here, getting to know people. I have so enjoyed teaching uh, some of your children at the school and building relationships uh, with them. I have enjoyed the opportunities to um, lead in worship from time to time. I have enjoyed the opportunities to teach in Sunday school uh, and to get to know some of you further as well. Um, all of these things I will miss. The flock groups have been wonderful, wonderful times of fellowship, um, which we will miss. Playing soccer on um, occasional Monday nights when I'm not working. Um, and I said in the early service, taking the field for softball, I don't want to call it playing. Um, 
those of you who have played with me know that that is not how softball is played. Um, but still, the fellowship that we enjoy there, uh, that I've enjoyed, will be uh, greatly missed. Um, during our time here, we have, uh, my family and I have laughed a lot, we have learned a lot, and we have been loved a lot by the people here, and we will desperately uh, miss you. Uh, you have become very dear to us, and uh, Philippians 1-3, where Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you will be a verse that I will remember when I think of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. So we're very thankful um, for the opportunities that we've had um, in our time here. I ask that you turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to uh, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we will be reading uh, verses 50 through uh, chapter 24, verse 6. Um, I can assure you this morning that I'm not going to be teaching you anything new. Um, this is uh, truths that you've heard uh, your whole life. Uh, my goal is really twofold um, with this sermon. The first is uh, for those of you who are here this morning and are believers in Christ who have given your uh, life to Him and have been taught these things and know these things, just, this is just a reminder to you, just to to remember how amazing your salvation is and all that it entails. Uh, the enemy is very good at causing us to forget things and to take things for granted. And so this is going to be a reminder uh, to you uh, to understand what exactly Christ did for us and then as a result of that, uh, worship him in a deeper way and be more grateful. Uh, the second uh, uh, goal of this sermon is if there's anyone here this morning who has not embraced Christ, um, my desire is that through the words that I speak uh, in the power of the Spirit that God would convict you, show you the amazing salvation that is provided in His Son Jesus Christ and that you would uh, indeed turn uh, to Him. Uh, so that is my desire today. I pray that God would do that. Let's read this passage together. <clears throat> and this is just going to be a starting passage. I'm not going to get into detail in here. Um, it's going to launch uh, our time this morning. Luke chapter 23. Now, uh, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him uh, in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Verse, chapter 24 begins with a very important word. Uh, it begins with the word, but. And this, not to sound silly, this is a big but, okay? This is a very important but in the Bible. Because what has just happened is that Jesus, who was supposed to be the Savior of the world, the hope of Israel, and the hope of the nations, his life has now ended, and all the hopes that he brought have ended with him. I mean, this is it, and his disciples are beside themselves. His mother is beside herself. Everyone who loved him is just, what in the world happened? And the beauty of this is it does not end here. And it's almost as if Luke is saying, whoa, 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 put away the tissues, okay? I have one more chapter. And he begins with this beautiful, beautiful word in light of this tragic death that has happened. And he says this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened 
and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember what he told you while he was in Galilee. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I know that I am not worthy. Um, I don't say that with some type of false humility. Um, Lord, this word is beyond me. It's beyond anyone. Um, And to, to speak the words and to try to proclaim what it means um, is no small task. And so I thank you for that opportunity. I do pray, Lord, that as we are together today, I pray that you would encourage us, pray that you would remind us of the great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday has passed. Jesus has been falsely accused, tried, and convicted. He has been brutally uh, put to death. His limp body has been taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb. The women come to the garden, the tomb, on the first day of the week, and they are met by two angelic beings who say, He is not here, for He has risen. And so my question to you this morning and to myself this morning is, Jesus is risen, so what? So what? What does that mean? Does that have any significance for us? And let me submit to you that this is the most important question that you will ever ask and answer in your life. And the reason I ask that question is because for the vast majority of the world— Jesus is just a historic figure. He's just a a great man. People will not deny his existence because there's too much uh, history to go with it. But they see him as a great teacher, a great philosopher, someone who was looking out for uh, the poor and the the oppressed and, and was just a great pioneer in this regard. But it stops there. He is no greater than any other great teacher or humanitarian. And his death is no greater than any martyr that has ever lived. And so my question is, so what? Does it have any significance? Does this resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate every Sunday, does it have any significance for us? And the answer that comes to us overwhelmingly from the scripture is yes, 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 it does. And the benefits that come to us this morning are in regard to our salvation. We are saved because of what Jesus did. And as I say that, let me give you a word of encouragement. Very often we use churchy terms when we're explaining the gospel to someone. Um, And this is one of those churchy terms. You've got to be saved. Jesus saves. You see it on bumper stickers and billboards and stuff like that. But in in the world we live in especially, where less and less people seem to be going to church and less and less people seem to be understanding their Bibles and the gospel is getting watered down more and more by uh, popular uh, preachers today, um, these terms really need to be defined. Um, Because someone, you might say, you need to be saved, and they look around, they're like, saved from what? I don't see any danger. Um, So explaining that, and that's really what I want to do this morning, is explain what we mean by the fact that we are saved, and that Jesus' death and resurrection brings salvation to us. Now, when we look at the the Bible, just as an overview, um, what we see is that when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about it in three aspects— There is a past aspect, a present aspect, and a future aspect to our salvation. The past aspect of salvation frees us from the penalty of sin. The present aspect frees us from the power of sin in our lives. And the future aspect will one day free us from the presence of sin in our lives. And this is how the Bible talks about salvation— You have to have all three, and that's what the Bible does. That's why Hebrews says that he is able to save us to the uttermost. Okay, this is a complete salvation. You can't have one without the other two. Um, Salvation is seen in these terms. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will one day be saved. This is beautifully summed up in the passage uh, 
in Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began, that's the past, will perfect it, that's the present, until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the future. And so that's what we're going to be looking at um, this morning, what we mean by the fact that we are saved. Now, we're going to start with the past aspect of salvation. This, in theological terms, is what is known as justification. Justification frees us from the penalty of sin. And I'm going to be jumping around the Bible. You don't have to turn uh, in there. I'm going to be quoting most of these verses. The first one that we come to is Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says this. And we're talking about what are the benefits of the resurrection for us this morning. Romans 4.25 says, He, that's Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. <clears throat> what does it mean to be justified or to have justification? Justification is a legal term. Now, unless you're a lawyer, you probably don't get too excited about legal terms and stuff like that, but this is a very important one. Every day in the news, we hear something about the Supreme Court. We hear about lower courts and stuff like that, and their decisions are final, and very often we don't like those decisions. Um, Sometimes we do like the decisions, but here is the courtroom of God. This is the ultimate authority, the authority that answers to no other authority. Uh, When God makes a decision, it is final, and no one debates it. And what we see in the courtroom of God is because of what Jesus has done for us, being delivered up and then raised, we stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, completely free from the penalty of sin. And I don't know if you take the time to ponder that and think about that, but it is very, very important I'm going to talk about that delivered up. Jesus was delivered up. To be delivered up in these terms means he was killed. He was crucified. He died. Um, And because of that, our sin is gone. The question is, who is it that put Jesus to death? Who was it that put Jesus to death? Well, when you think about it, it really wasn't the Romans even though they're the ones who carried out the crucifixion. And it really wasn't the Jews, even though they're the ones who forced the Romans' hands. Ultimately, the one who put Jesus to death was none other than his own father. His own father. And we see this in passages such as Isaiah 53, where it says, It pleased Yahweh to put him to death. It pleased the Lord to put him to death. It was the father who put his son to death. And think about that for a moment. Can you imagine? First of all, we cannot imagine what the relationship between the father and the son um, was. I mean, an amazing relationship, um, completely unbroken. We have great relationships here, but they're all marred by sin. Complete fellowship from all of eternity. And planning your son's own death. This is what the father did. And this is why Jesus cries out in the garden, not to the Romans, not to the Jews. He cries out to his father, if there's any other way, can we do it some other way? And then when he's on the cross, those horrifying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer that comes to us from the scriptures is he was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. That is why he did that Here's one of the ways that I like to um, explain it. And there's always, you know, anytime you get an illustration, there's always limitations to it. This is, just so you know, this is not exactly how it goes in heaven. uh, But just trying to paint a little word picture for you. Um, Here's how I like to explain it. So you have the father and the son standing shoulder to shoulder in the judgment day. And there I am placed right in front of them. All right, and it is judgment day. And the father looks at me directly in the eyes, and he cocks back his fist, all right? And this is a death blow fist, all right? And what he does is he looks directly at me, and he says, this is for every time that you lied. And he brings his fist forward, but what he does is he intentionally misses me 
and hits his son. And then he says, this is for every time that you were filled with pride. And he brings the fist forward again and boom, this is for every time that you lusted, every time that you were materialistic over and over again. And he beats his son and he punishes his son. And then when he's done with me, he goes to you and he does it again and again. He delivers a death blow to his son on behalf of you so that you and I do not have to experience that wrath. The wrong person died that day. We should have died. But in God's amazing salvation plan, he purposely put his son to death so that we could go free, so that we would not experience the pains of death and separation from him. He was, as Isaiah says, pierced through for our transgressions. Not his own. Our transgressions. He did not deserve that. But he willingly took it. Another illustration I like to use um, is regarding uh, my kids. Um, This is a uh, fantasy story, um, just to let you know. But anyway, uh, those of you who have young kids, you know this. You develop rules as you go through um, your uh, parenting. And one of the rules that we developed early on in our house was that you cannot write on the walls with markers or pens, all right? Or the computer screens or TV screens because that happened. And so then you set up a rule, don't do it, you can't do it, Um, it's never right. And then you say, here are the consequences for this. If you write on the wall, uh, let's just say you will get spanked. So you know the consequences, you know what is um, right and what is wrong, all right, so let's say that one day I am upstairs and uh, doing whatever, and I come downstairs, and there I see, um, and where my kids are younger at this time, and I see my one daughter writing on the wall. And she sees me out of the corner of her eye and just drops the marker, okay? Puts her hands behind the back as if nothing is happening. But there it is, her name right on the wall. Um, and you can see it clearly. And so what I do out of anger is I start to make my way towards her, to seize her and to deal out the punishment that is deserved, that she deserves. But as I am walking towards her, my other daughter steps in between us. And she says, Dad, please don't punish her. And I say, she did wrong. She knew that she did wrong. She knew what the punishment was. She deserves to be punished. And my daughter looks at me and says, I know, but it will hurt her. And I don't want her to experience that pain. Punish me instead. And I say, I'm not going to go easy on you. You're going to get the same punishment. I understand that, but I don't want her to experience that pain. People, this is what Jesus did for us. He stood between us and his father who was going to deal out the punishment for us. And he said, punish me instead. And his father did not spare anything. He poured out his full wrath on his son, which is an absolutely amazing thing. He did this for us. Two questions usually arise um, from critics of Christianity people, and maybe you've thought about this before too. Um, When you start to look at the Old Testament, you start to think about this. When I give that illustration of God coming at us and God wanting to punish us, you know, very often people ask, why is God so angry? Right? When you look at the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, why is God so angry? It's almost as if he's like sitting up there like, do it, do it, go ahead. You know, boom, I just want to knock you into eternity away from me. And we picture, some people picture God as like just this angry, out of control, temper tantrum God who needs therapy because he's just so angry all the time. Why is he so angry? And the reason why he is so angry is because of sin. Now, having said that, I'm almost willing to guarantee that most, if not everyone in here, when I said sin, were just like, yeah, and completely unmoved by that. You weren't like, whoa, is that why he's so angry? I get it, I get it, I know that. But do you really get it? And I don't think you do. I don't think you do because I know I don't get it, 
And I don't think anyone, even the strongest of Christians, get how absolutely serious sin is. Sin destroys, okay? Sin separates. And we don't get this because we become so desensitized to sin, it doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't offend us anymore. I was thinking about this. If I were to, uh, if you were to watch a clip of like a, a brutal murder scene, okay, which the first time you see it, you'd probably be like, you can't even watch it. Like maybe it's two minutes long, and you're like, oh, you know, you can't watch it. But then if you watch it again and again and again and again, pretty soon you're like, oh yeah, this is what happens next. This we become desensitized to it. Think about even the progression of TV in our society and how um, sin doesn't shock us anymore. I was telling a story in the, uh, the first service about when we were, lived in Mexico for um, a couple of months, um, we didn't have access to network TV, so we brought a bunch of DVDs. And one of the DVDs um, series that we had was uh, the Donna Reed Show. All right. Um, I remember my dad uh, watching it, and um, uh, I watched it uh, too. Um, I liked Donna Reed. I liked her from uh, uh, whatever that show was. Um, can't remember it. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. But we watched these shows, and one of the things that I, we, I just noticed which was funny is when Donna and her husband would go to bed at night, they would sleep in separate beds, all right? Which really wasn't reality, but what the networks were saying is that, you know what, what happens in the bedroom is really none of your business, and so we're, we're not going to bring you into that. But then you think about today and the stuff that we watch so freely on TV and the immorality um, that is so prevalent, and we see this stuff, and it really doesn't offend us that much. It really doesn't shock us that much because we become so desensitized to it. We listen to music, which really celebrates, in a lot of times, um, a lot of ways, immorality, and it really doesn't shock us like it should. But sin is very serious. Um, In 2002, my wife and I um, and my then uh, 12-year-old nephew, we took a trip to uh, Paris. We flew over to Paris and spent a couple days there, and it was great. And then from Paris, we were uh, taking a train ride down to Madrid uh, because it was the cheapest way to go. We got our tickets late, um, and the train was full. The only cart that was available for seats was what was known as the smoking cart. Uh, Now, I don't know if you're familiar with train rides, um, but usually how it goes is they'll have about four or five regular carts that most of the people sit in, and then they'll have a smoking cart, and then they'll have four or or five other carts, uh, and then a smoking cart. And the idea is this. When you are sitting in your normal seat and you just have that craving to smoke, you get up and you walk through however many carts you need to, and you get to the smoking cart. You sit down, you light up your cigarette, you spend 15, uh, 20 minutes there. When you're done, you put it out and you go back to your seat. All right? And everything is great, um, except for the people who are in the smoking cart. All right? And so we were there, and this was an 11-hour trip to Madrid. All right? And so we get in there and we sit down and we're like, how bad can it be? Um, Well, that question was answered for us right away because immediately people started coming in and smoking. How dare they? But there they are. They're smoking. And this one girl, I mean, within 15 minutes, comes, sits right in front of me. And there's tons of seats, people, tons of seats. She sits right in front of me, lights up a cigarette, and starts smoking. And so I do what anyone would do. I start, (coughs) you know, just coughing on her just to let her know that you're killing me. Um, but she doesn't care, and she's probably thinking, stupid American. Um, and I know she didn't care because she came in 30 minutes later and smoked again and kept doing that about every hour. And finally, I said, can you just move up like 10 seats or something like that? Um, but anyway, so here it is, 11 hours. At first, we're like, this is miserable. I mean, our eyes are dry, our throats, it, it just hurts. But you know what happened after about the fourth or fifth hour? The smoke no longer bothered us. We became used to it. Was it killing us? Yes, it was. Um, It was going to kill us more than the fresh air outside, but it was killing us. But we didn't know that anymore. It wasn't affecting. It didn't shock our lungs anymore. 
And I tell you, when those doors opened to Madrid and that air came in, that was the best breath I'd ever taken. And I forgot what fresh air was because I was so used to it. And guys, this is really how it is with our sin. We're so used to it. We're so used to lying. Just those little lies, no big deal. We're so used to gossiping. Well, it's not that big of a deal. We're so used to watching things that we shouldn't watch, saying things that we shouldn't say. We're so used to it that it doesn't shock us anymore like it should. And the truth of the matter is that God, why is he so angry? Because God knows exactly what sin does. He knows exactly how destructive it is. Every single problem in this world is because of sin. Every divorce that ever takes place, every murder that ever takes place, every rape that ever takes place, every disease that has ever been known to man is a result from the fall and from sin. And God does not take it lightly. God does not like, oh, that's no big deal. No, every sin is offensive to God. That is why he is so angry. Because he knows that sin destroys. He knows that sin separates. And it breaks his heart. And that's why he is so angry at sin. Another question that people ask besides why is God so angry is that, okay, God is in control, right? I mean, he's the one who calls the shots. Why can't God just wipe out sin without causing the death of his son? Why does he have to go to such drastic measures? Why can't he say, hey, look, it's my house, it's my rules, I'm just going to change the rules in here, and, and everyone is forgiven, They're, my son doesn't have to die, everyone wins in this situation. Why doesn't God just do that? And the truth of the matter is, is that God cannot do that. And I know that when you say that, what do you mean God cannot? You realize that there are things that God cannot do. I always ask this in my classes, you know, and they're like, no, God can do everything. No, no, God can't lie, right? He cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. God cannot go against his character. And what God has done in the universe is he has set up certain rules that even he, if I can put it this way, abides by. And one of those rules is that the wages of sin is death. It is death. Somebody has to die. The payment has to be made. And so God can't just say, okay, you all sin. I'm just going to forgive you all. Don't worry about it. Someone has to pay the price. Here's a, an illustration that I like to use. Let's say that, you know, now I'm, uh, yeah, I've worked at the school for three years, worked as a pharmacist one day uh, a month. And so now we're moving down to Galveston. And so I'm going to um, get some money together. I get some money together and I buy a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO. All right? Um, the estimated worth of that car is about $28 million, okay? Um, which you can do with a teacher's salary. All right? So I got the, this car, and it's a beautiful car, and I'm, you know, going through midnight prices and all that stuff. So I want to look cool. So here I am. I'm driving this car around, and then there's this young man, 18 years old. He's in the church that I'm going to now, and let's just say, you know, he wants to take this, uh, this girl out. But he's got an 82 diesel Chevette, all right? Um, my first car was actually an orange diesel Chevette. Um, beautiful thing. So he's like, this is all I got. I want to impress her. And, and this diesel Chevette is just not doing it. Can I borrow your car? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know? But I'm like, I know him. Yes, you can. Be very careful. Oh, I will be very careful. And there he is, and he's, you know, in the moment. He feels the power of the car. He's trying to impress this girl. And so he just goes a little bit too fast, loses control, smashes into a telephone pole. And the car is totaled. Totaled. And after he comes out of the hospital, he comes to me with just great humility. He says, I'm so, so sorry for what I did I will pay you back. I, I, it may take me my whole life, but I will pay you back. I promise I will pay you back. And I look at this and say, there's no way in the world he will ever be able to pay me back. And I look at him and I say, I forgive you this debt. You don't owe me anything. Is that an act of grace? That's a huge act of grace. Let me ask you something. Does it do anything to the condition of my car? No. 
I still have a totaled car that is worthless now. What I have done is I have shifted the debt from him to me. And now I am responsible for it. And this is exactly what God does in the atonement. This is what God does, is he shifts the debt. You owe me this debt that you can never pay back. I am shifting it from you to me now. And he pays the debt. So God, in order to uphold his justice, pays the debt for us. And what we see as a result of this, and this is beautiful, don't miss this. The end of chapter 4 of Romans says this, he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. And then right, you go right into chapter 5 and it starts off with these beautiful words. Therefore, having been justified by faith, listen to this, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Now, I don't know. Once again, you really need to dwell on these words. Peace with God. Peace is an elusive thing. We desire peace. Look at the Middle East right now, right? There is no peace. And it's, imagine being there right now. It's horrible. You see it on the news every day. No peace at all. Think about even family relationships, tensions. When you fight with someone and maybe a brother or a sister or a parent and you don't talk to them for years and years and every time someone asks, hey, how is so-and-so? It's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I haven't talked to my brother in like four or five years. That peace is so elusive and if it's important for us to have peace with one another, people, it is way, way more important for you to be at peace with God You do not want God on your bad side. I think about um, the Iraqi war and uh, when Saddam Hussein was fleeing and he had the wrath of a nation on him. The U.S. was searching everywhere for him. He had no peace with the U.S. And the U.S. eventually found him. Let me tell you something. If you are not at peace with God, God knows exactly where you are. You will not escape his wrath. It is coming upon you. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can be at peace with God. And that is an amazing, amazing truth. Don't, don't take it for granted. It is an amazing benefit that comes to us because of the resurrection of Christ. A second benefit that comes to us because of the resurrection, not only freedom from the penalty of sin, we are, we are no longer guilty before God, but also we're not just saved from our past sins, we also have the power to be saved from our present sins. That salvation extends right into our present lives. Sin destroys, it destroys families, it destroys friendships, it brings disease, it brings discouragement, it brings depression. In light of all those things, it is still alluring, right? Those sins that you struggle with, those desires that you have, and I can guarantee you today that if you are a human being sitting in these pews, which I assume everyone is, that you are struggling with sin. You're struggling with some sin or multiple sins, And some of them you're thinking, oh my goodness, if anyone ever found out the thing that I struggle with, I'd be so humiliated. So humiliated. And these sins you struggle with day in and day out, year after year. And some of them, you you know how it is. Some of you have lived the Christian life for a long time. Some of these sins just stick with you. And you never, you're just like, my goodness. And you feel like Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he says, the things that I want to do, I I don't do. And the things that I I don't want to do, those are the things that I find myself doing. Then he cries out, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then the answer comes, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you go from Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8, what you see is you see Romans chapter 8 talks more than any other uh, chapter in the Bible about the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is it that gives you victory in this life over sin? It is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives you the power in this life to overcome sin. You do not have to listen to your old master, the devil, anymore when he tells you to do things. You do not have to. You have the power 
of the Holy Spirit living in you to overcome those sins. Are you tired of sinning? Are you tired of seeing the destruction that it brings to your family, to your children, to your wife, to, your, to those around you, to those at work? Are you tired of that? The power of the Holy Spirit is available. And why is this power available to us? It's available to us because of the death, resurrection of Jesus. I love it. In the, in the book of uh, uh, John, towards the end of the book, what you see is that Jesus is giving his final discourse. He's, 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 he's getting ready to leave and he's talking to his disciples and he says this. He says, I'm getting ready to leave and I know that that brings you sadness, but let me tell you something. It's good that I leave because if I don't leave, then the Holy Spirit does not come. But if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you who will be with you, who will guide you into all truth. And what we see is, as a result of the Holy Spirit are passages such as this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And see if you can find yourself in this list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. By the Spirit of our God. Because of the provision of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to overcome sin in our lives. Second Corinthians says this, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from sin. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit is conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. Jesus didn't just say, here, you're saved from the penalty of sin. Now you're on your own. No, he said, I'm going to give you a a person, someone who will be there to help you overcome sin in your life because now you understand how serious sin is. And so the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And the Holy Spirit gives us the victory. You do not have to listen to the enemy anymore. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are now being saved from the power of sin in our lives. Tap into that power. Um, It is available for us. The final thing that we are saved from is the presence of sin. And this is what is known as glorification. Um, I love it. The Bible talks to this. When you look at Romans 8, it talks about glorification as a past event. Um, You have been glorified, all right? Whom he justified, he also glorified. The beauty of this is this will happen. And I don't know if you think about um, this too much, but can you imagine what it would be like one day to be without sin? We live in it every day. Like I said before, it's no big deal. You know, sometimes it's just like, oh, uh, sometimes we get those moments where we're like, goodness, man, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Can you imagine one day you will not struggle with any of those sins anymore? Whatever it is, if, it, if it's lust, if it's materialism, if it's, if it's mean-spiritedness or selfishness or, or whatever, one day you will no longer struggle with that. It will be taken completely away. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. It's going to be heaven, right? And that's, gonna, that's the beauty of it. One day we will no longer struggle with these things. And on top of that, think about the, what sin brings into this world. Think of disease and sickness. Right now that I'm in my 40s, and those of you who are older think, 40s were nothing. I'll wait till you get to your 60s and 70s. And I understand that. Um, I had a talk with a lady at work um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and she was just t- telling me about how her body was falling apart. She was in her 60s and 70s, and uh, I was sharing some stories with her as well, and I, you know, I remember, I don't go to the eye doctor that often, but 15 years ago, I went to the eye doctor, all right, and they checked my eyes, and they're like, okay, you're going to need a new prescription, and then like 10 years ago, like five years later, I went to the eye doctor again, and they did, you know, um, they did the eye exam, and they said, this is weird, but your vision has actually improved. 
And I'm thinking, that's awesome. Um, let me tell you something. That is no longer the case, all right? Uh, if I go there again and they're like, your vision has improved, I'm like, you're lying to me. Because it has not, my eyesight gets worse and worse every day. I'm to the point now where um, I used to make fun of the pharmacists who had to use the lights, you know, to see the pills um, that they're dispensing. And now I'm like, you know, looking under the lights to make sure that people are getting the right um, stuff. Don't come to my pharmacy. But anyway, so just making sure. And then my hearing, oh my goodness. You know, I used to... I hate to admit this, but used to laugh at my dad because he couldn't hear and he just nod his head. Now that's what I'm doing. People are talking to me at school. They're like, they'd ask me something. I'm like, what? And they repeat it again. I'm like, yeah, okay. And I have no idea what they're saying. And then the different aches and pains that come into uh, my body, how difficult sometimes um, it is uh, after you do some of the most routine things, like, you know, maybe playing some athletic event, um, how you suffer uh, for it uh, the next couple of days. Um, And those are mild things, I know, compared to what some people are going through. I know that in here there are people who struggle with diabetes. And diabetes is a horrible disease that affects so many organs in the body. And it is wreaking havoc on your body And some people are struggling from uh, arthritis and uh, debilitating bone diseases and stuff like that. And and that chronic pain, the chronic back pain or hip pain or knee pain. And every day it's there with you and you're like, why, why, why? And some people struggling with cancer and other diseases, heart disease and stuff like that. And you're just thinking, my goodness, is there any end to this? And the answer that comes to us over and over again from the scriptures is, yes, there is an end. Jesus did not just save us from the penalty of sin. He is not just saving us now from the power of sin. He will one day free us and save us from the presence of sin in our lives. And these bodies that are so prone to sickness and disease will one day be perfect. Perfect. With no defects, no pain, at all. And I think about this, the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This perishable body, this body that is so subject to disease and sickness and death, will one day be imperishable and perfect. This is beautifully laid out for us in the last book of the Bible. I love this because when we start the Bible out in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you got, God makes this perfect environment. He brings the man and the woman together in in perfect bliss, places them in this beautiful environment, and everything is great. And then all hell breaks loose when they partake of the forbidden fruit, and then you just see the pages of Scripture are just filled with disease and sickness and death and sadness over and over and over and over again. And then you come to the last book of the Bible— one of the last chapters of the Bible, and you read these words. Listen to them again this morning. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Every tear from your eye 
gone. And I can guarantee that you've cried tears. And I have too. And we will continue. But one day, our Heavenly Father will grab us and he will take us and wipe away every tear. And that knee pain that you have, that back pain that you have, that cancer pain that you have, will be gone completely, never, ever to return again. That is awesome. And the beauty of this, the best thing about this passage is what it says, the dwelling place of God is with man. And this is better than anything because the presence of God will be with us. We will behold him face to face. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 1611. And it says this. It says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy that lasts forever. Where? In material possessions? No, in the presence of God. And this is brought to us because of the resurrection. Jesus said this, because if we, and Paul said, if you have been united with him in a likeness of his death, we will also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. We are going to be resurrected with, just like Christ was, we will be resurrected to a new body. The benefits of the resurrection come right down to us today. This is what it means. And so my encouragement to you today is if you are here and you have never embraced Christ, these benefits, the wrath of God is upon you. The wrath of God will one day be yours completely unhindered. But because of what Jesus has done, if you put your faith in Christ, you will be freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin in your life, and one day the presence of sin in your life. And if you're here today and you have already embraced Christ, People celebrate it. Remember it anew. This is amazing what he has done for you. You no longer stand guilty before God. No condemnation to you at all. You have power to overcome sin in your life. And one day, every ailment that you've ever had, every sickness that you've ever had, every pain that you've ever had, will be completely gone. And I love what Paul says. The sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the salvation. Lord, I know that I take it for granted so often. Um, Even when I think about this, it it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal uh, for me, and I ask forgiveness for that. Father, I do pray that you would help us to remember how amazing that salvation is. Lord, help us to live in the light of that fact um, this afternoon and this week, Lord, celebrating the salvation that has been provided for us in your son's death and resurrection. We thank you so much, and we pray this in, his son, in your son's name. Amen.